Welcome into the Wednesday Bible Study, coming to you from the Rick and Bubba Studios uh, here in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for taking time to be with us. If you are brand new to the study, uh, rare is the Wednesday that we are not here. Uh, You can catch it live on the Rick and Bubba. You can go to rickandbubba.com on the YouTube channel there. If you'll subscribe to that, uh, it'll start coming to you an alert. Hey, we're rolling again. You'll also get... Uh, the Rick and Bubba show, if you so desire, uh, and get an alert on that as well. Uh, this Bible study is also, also archived by uh, Chris Adler every week, and it's put on our YouTube channel for you to view in your own time. Also, we take the audio and we put it on the Rick and Bubba podcast channel for you to listen to the audio on your time if that works better. Uh, if you'd like to go back and say, you know what, uh, you guys are studying the Revelation right now. We're not that far in, so you're okay. You can catch up pretty quick. Or if you just want to go back to some of the other series that we've done in the past, you can find all those archives by going to Burgess Ministries. That's my last name, BurgessMinistries.com, uh, and just look, click on Listen right there. You'll see the men's Bible study there, and click on that and go. I got another email this week from ladies around the country. They go, you know, we're watching and listening to this too. You're welcome. We're glad to have you here in the room. It's men only, and it started at a, as a men's Bible study. Uh, that's that's still the foundation. It's part of a greater strategy that you can find at themanchurch.com. Uh, our strategy revolves around two things that you find in Scripture. Uh, that is high challenge and men being pulled into services uh, by themselves uh, for God to speak to the men uh, of, of the church uh, and, the, and the society, and then we do high equipping. Uh, that's a part that uh, too many times has been missing uh, from men's ministry or really any strategy to dis- to make disciples. So uh, what we do is offer four 40-week curriculums. we got our fourth one coming out this year, and you can plug into those. Uh, five weeks, uh, every five weeks is a new topic. Uh, and uh, so we have high challenge in our man church services. We have high equipping in our small groups. All that can be found at themanchurch.com. Uh, we also are doing our first ever conference this year as far as us putting it on. Uh, We joined a lot of conferences providing curriculum, but we put together the entire conference this time, uh, and it is sold out, but it's coming to Oxford, Alabama on February the 24th and 25th. So if you're coming to that, we look forward to seeing you there, and it'll be like a convention. Uh, A lot of the leadership of the churches will be finding out the latest resources we have coming out, uh, you know, be sharing, uh, be telling us how it's going with them. We'll have some of our teachers there. So uh, that'll be a great weekend together and really, really looking forward to that. So if you're looking for another service near you because the conference is sold out, but you can go to any of these services and most of the time there's not even a ticket required. Uh, so let's look at some of them that are coming up. I'll be in Tuscaloosa, Alabama this Sunday night. Uh, and if, when I say Sunday night, if you're watching this around the time it was done or listening, that's February uh, the 5th. I'll be at First Baptist Church, uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, for their next man church. They'll feed us 5 to 6, and then we'll start at 6. You just, ne- just need to be there. Uh, February the 10th, my anniversary, so I won't be anywhere, uh, but Rich Wingo will be speaking West Georgia Worship Center in Bremen, Georgia. He'll be there. Uh, then on the 11th, Jordy Henson will be at West Mobile Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama. February the 17th, uh, Andrew Varvudis will be at No Limit Church, Valley Grand, Alabama. That's about 10 miles before you get to Selma. Uh, there in Alabama, uh, and uh, the No Limit Church will have Andrew Varvudis, and they're inviting all the churches in the community to join them as they kick off the strategy. That same day, February the 17th, you'll have Rich Wingo and Scott Dawson in Chipley, Florida, and that is the Prove Yourself a Man uh, conference. We just talked about that with Polycarp. Right? That's where that phrase comes from. Uh, and it will be in, in Chipley, Florida. So I'm just going to give you February. There's there's others that you can find at themanchurch.com, and you go find a man church near you or a small group near you and plug into our strategy. So today we'll continue through the book of Revelation. These are the seven uh, letters to the seven churches. We'll be in the church number three today, uh, Pergamum. Uh, and that'll start in verse 12 of chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to unpack your holy word. May we hear the warnings. May we hear uh, the affirmations. Uh, May we glean from this what you intended through the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're moving into the third church that gets a letter. This is the church at Pergamum. Uh, Some of the older commentaries and some other translations, uh, Pergamus 
is this is the same place. It's just two different ways to say it uh, in English. So let's talk about uh, where we are um, in Revelation 2. It's about 100 miles north of Ephesus. That was our first church. Uh, that's where this city is located. If you think about last week, talking about the church at Smyrna, if you want to think about where um, Pergamum would be, it's almost um, uh, like if you were traveling that 100 miles north of Ephesus, about halfway would be Smyrna. And if you kept going, now you get to Pergamum. So, so Smyrna is about halfway between these two cities. Uh, and unlike Smyrna and uh, unlike Ephesus, this is not a port city. Uh, it, it is inland a little bit, about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Uh, Pergamon was considered uh, uh, Asia Minor's greatest city. Uh, the Roman writer uh, uh, Pliny actually called it, and this was how he described it, he said this is by far the most distinguished city in all of Asia. So it was a very, very impressive city. Now, when, when John pins the Revelation, uh, Pergamum is Asia's capital, and, and, and it was the capital for 250 years, including the time when John wrote this. Uh, now, if you want to know where it stands, it still stands today. Uh, it is the Turkish city, uh, Bergama. Uh, so if you know where that is, that's actually where we are. It's, it's the same city. It still stands today under a different name uh, in what we call Turkey. So uh, th- th- this was a place of very, very high learning. These were very, very intelligent people. Uh, they had a library uh, that they said uh, rivaled Alexander, um, uh, Alexandria. They they said in this library at, at Pergamum, there were over 200,000 handwritten volumes. Uh, now, the problem in the city is this is a pagan city, and uh, this city worshiped four of the main deities of the Greco-Roman world, Athena, all, temples to Athena, uh, uh, the one that is hard to say, but it's Asclepius, uh, also had a temple. Uh, Dionysus has a temple, and Zeus has a temple. So these four uh, Greco-Roman deities were very, very much worshipped in the city, which is going to lead to some problems coming up. Uh, also, uh, the cult of what we kind of saw in Smyrna a little bit, the cult of worshipping the Roman emperors also going on here. Uh, and and this was the actual cult of all the things that were go- that were going on in these Roman cities, in Pergamum, the thing that brought the most persecution of the followers of Christ was from those that were of the cult of worshiping the emperors. They were very aggressive, and they wanted to eradicate Christianity from the entire place. So that's where most of the persecution comes from. So this church and these followers of Jesus were in danger. Day by day, every single day, they face the potential persecution of these people. And um, so one day a year, uh, everybody was required to offer sacrifices to whomever the emperor was at the time. Now, we're going to get to another hero of the faith this week, Antipas. Uh, that, that'll be coming up in, in verse 13. You'll see that when he is executed... Most historians think his execution was tied to this. He wouldn't do it. Uh, he was a leader in the church, and, and he would not do this. And, and so they martyred him, and we'll, we'll get to that today. So now let's talk about uh, when we look at the three different views, and we, we, you know, we, we acknowledge them all. Uh, and um, so if, if you're looking at the, the view that this was just a church, that Jesus is writing the letter to that church in that time, uh, while these things were actually going on, and that's all it is, then you would look at this church as a faltering church. Okay, that, that would be the way you would look at it. You're going to see there's some good, but then once again, Jesus is going to say, but I have these things against you. It, it was beginning to falter mainly because it was not dealing with false doctrine. we got a lot of that going on even, even right now. And you're going to see what Jesus says. Man, that's crucial. Hear me loud and clear. You're going to see today what Jesus says about false doctrine being inside his church. He's going to be very clear about that today. Okay, So that's the way you would look at it. Now, if you're looking at it was the state of a church at any given time, and an example of what could be going on at any, any given time, it would be the development of class systems within the church. Uh, This is when we started kind of adding some stuff inside the church and elevating certain people uh, to levels maybe they shouldn't be, Uh, a lot of rituals, 
a lot of classism, cler- clerical uh, being elevated to maybe being a little more like deity, this kind of stuff. So, so that was going on, which you would see that being a lot to do with Catholicism. But then if you're looking at it from a, prophet, a prophetic point of view, uh, what, what it would be called is the patronized church, meaning this is a period of time when the churches begin to lose sound doctrine. Okay, so there's the three views. Um, and so now let's talk about what exactly is going on uh, in this church. Uh, the problem that you're going to see, and Jesus points this out loud and clear, uh, is this was becoming a worldly church. Uh, they, they weren't just entertaining false doctrine. They were getting to the point where they didn't look much different than the world. They were embracing the world inside the church. And again, uh, this is a concern, I think, uh, that has been a concern for a long time. Today, really, if you look at today, uh, and, and this is a general statement. When I say these things, they're general statements. And when I say these things, I want to be clear. Most of the things that we should be concerned about are mainly problems in the Western church. Don't assume that the rest of the world acts the way we do with such, such a laid-back attitude toward worshiping God because it may cost them their life. They actually have to sacrifice in order to worship God, so they actually are quite devoted. Uh, but, but those of us that kind of have the easy life, we, we, we kind of drift uh, into the world, uh, and, and this, this is something that you don't hear preached against that much in general in the Western church. Of course there's exceptions. Praise God for that. But in general, this is not a popular topic uh, from the pulpit in the Western church. Because why? Makes seekers uncomfortable. You don't want to talk about sin. Don't want to talk about right and wrong. Don't want to talk about God's standard. Because that makes people seeking, it makes them uncomfortable. See, I, I, I don't agree with that. I think it's just the opposite. Uh, I'm thankful that when I would go into a church that the things I was doing in my life was preached against, preached against because that, that, that actually brought me under conviction. Strange concept. Uh, that, that I was actually, And sometimes... We may be doing things, and because we're so we we're, we have so so ignorant to what Scripture says, I've had things that were pointed out to me by a Bible teacher that I didn't know, and I adjusted that behavior because I wasn't aware that what I was doing was wrong. Right now, sometimes you know just because they're obvious, but there's a lot of things that Scripture talks about that if you don't know Scripture, you may, you may think you're just fine. So, so, and that's the problem. I don't know what good it does a seeker if we just continue to let them know they're fine. You're good. God's going, hey, he's going to be fine. He meets you right where you are. True, but he doesn't leave you there. But, but, but what we're preaching now is you haven't, you don't have to change anything. And so this was going on. So, so remember when, when we start making, and I just watched a documentary last night about a big time, huge church movement around the world that that uh, that has had some issues. When when our goal is to not tell the truth because we think it's bad marketing, we don't think it'll help our marketing. The Bible is going to call that attitude today serious sin. Let me say that again: serious sin. We are called to make disciples. We are not called to make consumers. I'm going to say that again. We are not called to, we are called to make disciples. We are not called to make consumers. We're not marketing a brand that needs to be consumer friendly. What we're, and we should never, ever, 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 ever apologize for what God says. He doesn't, he doesn't need us as PR agents. Okay, so this is this is you're going to see this a lot because we 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 have a, a new 31 day devotional coming out uh, at the end of this month. We'll we'll launch it at the conference, and it's the first thing that God's ever called me to sit down with Him and write myself with Him. Of course, I'm just talking about me actually doing some of the commentary, and it's going to be called Transformed because I don't know what's going on with the fact that we have a lot of people preaching right now that Jesus comes into your life, redeems you, and really doesn't change anything. But Scripture does not say that. And so 
what we're told in the Bible is that we're to be to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is and which is acceptable and perfect. That's right out of Scripture. So we're not supposed to be anything like the world. We're supposed to be completely transformed. Why? Because we have more self-control? No. Because we're better rule keepers? No. Why are we transformed? By the power of God! By the power of God coming into our lives. How can we say that God is that inadequate? He just can't transform me. Yes, he can. If, if we are not transformed by God, you don't have God. Now, I'm not saying it's all been completed. You may be a different place of your sanctification and a different place of your growth. I, I'm much further along this year than I was last year. But I know I was redeemed last year, too, because the transformation was going on. It's not complete, but it's going. Why? Because of me? No, because of him. John 15, abide in me. If you abide in me and I abide in you, then I will produce much fruit in you because apart from me, you can't do anything. And when I produce that fruit, here it comes, it proves that you're my disciples. What is that saying? We see Jesus in you. He's oozing from you. The world's not oozing from you. Jesus is because you're being transformed because you repented and he's transforming you. So here's what Titus 2.12 said. Deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And we are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You get that a lot. Well, one day, I mean, I ain't never going to get it done today. You know, I'm just, you, you, sometimes I hear testimonies sometimes that I wish people would just stop giving them. If I hear another testimony by somebody that hadn't been changed, I still keep messing up, doing the same old things, but God still loves me. Well, I think if you're being transformed, based on Scripture, I might still be messing up, but it's not the same stuff. It's new stuff. Like I said to you a couple weeks ago, when I was first redeemed, it was just like, let's see if we can keep you out of jail. But now it's down to motivation. It's down to arrogance and pride. Um, You know, anything that's still carnal. But you really shouldn't be still dealing with the same old things. Because that's not transformation. That's that's not maturation. That's not sanctification. And I hear testimonies all the time. It doesn't sound like the person's even been changed. I want to hear somebody talk about how much it's changed them. And uh, and so here's here's what James, you know, James, we can always depend on James. It cut right to the chase. James 4 4. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. See how see how more straightforward he was than Titus? Titus kind of eased in there a little bit. James just said, I'll tell you one thing, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Period. That's why he only has five chapters. Everybody else just goes on and on and on. James says, I need five chapters. I'll be done. So friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, who, uh, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm a C student from Calhoun County. Hey, James, roger that. I can understand that. Can you all understand that? If you love the world, then you hate God. Not the people of the world. We are supposed to love the people of the world, but we don't love the world system. Okay? So, Pergamum failed to heed this biblical warning against worldliness, and this is what Jesus is going to have to call them out about, just as he calls us out about it. So let's go to verse 12, where we start. Chapter 2, the revelation from Jesus to John. And to the angel of the church... And Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus doesn't waste any time here. Uh, The holder of the sharp two-edged sword, uh, he is saying, let them know that this message is coming from the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you remember these are, when you see these letters, have you noticed he's picking one of the descriptions that John gave us of him in chapter 1? So this time he said, now to this bunch, it's going to be that vision of me with a two-edged sword because they're going to need to hear from my word. It is the word of God that he's talking about. Uh, And, of course, the beautiful thing the writer of Hebrews says that that the word of God is two-edged because it has no dull edge. Sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, 
uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the other letter to the church at Ephesus from Paul, verse 17, Paul uses this analogy. He refers to the Word of God as a sword. Okay? So we also see, what are we seeing Jesus as now? What, what, what's, what's the revelation that John is seeing? He's not seeing baby Jesus. He's not seeing suffering servant Jesus. He's not seeing Jesus hanging on the cross. He's seeing the judge and the executioner. He has come to judge the world. And he says, here comes the two-edged sword. Uh, we're also going to see this image again uh, in Revelation 19.15. So the church molding into the world actually started, and, and this is something that we got to listen to. Look, we don't need to go looking for trouble. Don't hear me saying that. Lord, please continue to be merciful with us. We don't want to go looking for trouble. But the reason why we're allowed trouble is because trouble works. If you want to know when the church began to drift after the apostles to the world, Constantine, because he stopped the persecution. So you're thinking, what? That wasn't a blessing from God? Not, when, not what started happening. So now the persecution stops because people couldn't stomach it anymore. So Constantine comes in there, and he says in A.D. 313, no more persecution. It was called the Edict of Milan. And he then, now listen to what I'm saying here. Some of y'all ain't going to like this, but stay with me. So Constantine says, I want religious freedom for these Christians. Okay, sounds good. It became the favored religion of the empire. But then what happened? Because it became everybody's favorite. And persecution was over, and it was easy to be a Christian. The church began to merge with the state. And, and the world begin to come into the church. Because anybody can be a Christian now. doesn't cost you anything. And, and, and it started turning worldly. It left being a follower of Jesus being a personal matter and a personal sacrifice, the deny yourself, pick up your cross, and now guess what it became? See if it sounds familiar. A national identity. <clears throat> Look at us, this Christian. We're a Christian empire. Just like you hear us say we're a Christian nation. I don't think God sees us as devoted to him in this country. Might have been, we might have been developed, which is foundationally on Christian principles, no doubt about that. Uh, but the way we behave in this country right now, you can't say that we're not that the world is not part of what we do in everything because it is. And you hear people all the time. Before you know it, if you don't, if you're not careful, you'll start thinking that your faith is also a political party. Better be careful. You know, it, it's uh, it, it's not the political system. Thank goodness we get to be involved in it in this constitutional republic. That's a blessing that we get to have a say in it. And you, and you should, and I should. No problem with that. But when we start identifying ourselves more politically as a Christian versus a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, and suddenly political parties and government and some of that becomes kind of as important to us as that, be careful because that's what happened in Rome. That's exactly what happened. So the church married a political system, and worldliness was now synonymous with the church. And so that's what was going on. And now Jesus says in 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and here, here's a, here's a, a uh, he commends them on this. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. We'll talk about him, my faithful witness. If you have something right now to write with, and you have the Word of God in front of you, I want you to underline my faithful witness. That's really, really important. Okay. And if you're not underlining, write it down. 
who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So what does Jesus mean by that? He's, he, he said, I commend you for holding fast to my name while you're living where Satan's throne is. So remember, where they're located, there's a number of theories on this, but I think, I think they all hold up pretty good. Um, remember where they are. Everywhere they look outside their window is a temple to Zeus. It's a temple to an, a Roman emperor. Uh, the cult who worship the Roman emperors, they're, they're always after them. They hate them. Uh, you've got uh, Athena. You've got all these, these Greek gods and all this going on and paganism everywhere they look. And he says, I understand that your church is located where Satan dwells. I got it. And I will go ahead and let us all know that if you're in this fallen creation, you and I are also where Satan's throne is. It's here. Now, he's not going to get it, but he's got it right now. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we live where Satan's throne is. And, and he, he's waging war. And, 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 and he's, he's doing everything he can to minimize the effectiveness of the church because he knows he can't stop it. And one of the ways that we get minimized is for him to think we're just fine, just like we are. Nothing to be concerned about here. Don't be, don't be, Rick, Rick, he's reading what Jesus is saying. I mean, you're fine. You're not like some pagans or anything. Y'all go to church most of the time if it's not raining or something. You know, I mean, you, you, uh, I mean, y'all are devout. You're devout. And so, so here, here's what, here's what goes on. He said, though, that there were members of this church who see all this around them. They hear the persecution at the door day by day. They've been told to give sacrifices to the Roman emperors, and he says, I commend those of you that won't do it. There are people in this church that will not deny me, and they hold fast even while they live where Satan is on the throne. And he commends them for that. And then here's the thing about Antipas. I love in the Revelation that we keep seeing these heroes of the faith. Jesus Christ talks about Antipas, and he refers to him, while I want you to underline it and write it down, he's one of the leaders in the church, my faithful witness. Do you know who else Jesus calls faithful witness in the Revelation? Himself. Himself. I'm the faithful witness. This is something he calls himself. And he says, Antipas is my faithful witness. Would he say that about you? Would he say that about me? Would he look to your life and my life and say, now that one right there, he reminds me of myself. He's devout to the will of God. He is a faithful witness. Not unfaithful, not inconsistent, not not every now and then. That one right there is going to hear from me, well done, good and faithful servant, because he's a faithful witness. Now you say, well, what, what happened to Antipas? Not good. Antipas uh, and the historians have it down, and they're all pretty much agreeing on this if you look back through it. So a lot of these temples, you came and made sacrifices to these gods. And one of them, they had a bull that was like an oven, and it was blazing hot. And you'd take your sacrifice to the god laid up on there, and it would be consumed. They threw Antipas on it and burned him to one of the gods. Since he wasn't going to do the yearly sacrifice, they made him th that year's sacrifice. But you know what he said? Throw me on the bull. See, we don't have to worry about that yet. If you live long enough, it's coming. You can feel it out there. The church is not the answer in this country anymore. It's the problem. You're hearing all kinds of bizarre theology being taught by some pretty well-known names. 
I mean, we have a church today, First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, that is actually saying that they're so concerned about confusion with doctrine now because of what some of these big names are saying when it comes to sexuality. They're going to tell the members of the church that they must sign that they are in agreement with what God has said about gender, sexuality, marriage, and intimacy. And if they won't sign it, they're out. Now you say, well, that seems a bit extreme. But you know why the pastor said they're doing it? Because everybody's confused by all these other teachers. We have to clarify this. And because I would say, well, just keep teaching it and they'll get it. But he said, no, we teach it, then somebody else teaches something else that they can watch on YouTube or they can watch on the streaming service from big church in big city with big last name. And by the way, if Andy Stanley did not have that last name, we'd have called him a heretic years ago. But it's time, okay? So, so, so anyway, um, th- so this church is saying we have to counter this with something extreme because we need to remove the people from this that claim to be one of us that don't adhere to God's standard. Now, I'm not talking about the lost. The lost didn't have to sign anything. It's the people who claim to already be redeemed. And that's, that's the big difference. Remember, Paul says we don't judge the lost. The lost are welcome to come to a service anytime they want to. He says it's the ones that claim to be part of the church. Now, then we do judge because we're called to because we've got to keep the church clean. And you're going to see that here. It's about to come up. So Antipas is referred to as my faithful witness. Would we be called that? Roasted to death inside a brass bull. We believe it was Emperor Domitian that did this. Um. And when he calls this name, we're, we're translating it here in English to witness, but it's actually coming from the Greek word martis, which then went on to become the word martyr in English. And the reason why it became used in, pl- in the place of witness, y'all ready for this? Man, this is good. Scary, but it's good. You know why they stopped using the word witness and started going with martyr? Because all these witnesses of Jesus just kept being martyred. So really, if you didn't understand what we were talking about, saying, you know, that's a martyr of Jesus. Because the word witness and being martyred just became so normal. It happened to so many of those that actually would be his witness that they just started interchanging it with the word martyr. And Antipas gets the title that Jesus refers to himself. If you want to go back and look, you'll see it. We talked about it in Revelation 1. See Revelation 1.5? See it? You see one five. John's telling us this revelation is coming from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Then Jesus will uh, it'll be it'll be coming up again in fourteen of chapter three with the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. There's Jesus calling himself faithful witness. John calls him that. He calls himself that. Now Antipas is being called that because he would not deny him. You're going to see this word overcomer a lot, gentlemen. If you don't like this word overcomer, you're not going to like this study. You know know who an overcomer is? When Jesus points to the sins of the church, you know who the overcomers are? The ones who don't do that. They don't give in to the culture. They don't blend. When a hard line is drawn, they won't compromise Jesus. They overcome. Now, you may get burned on a bull, and you may get uh, speared while you stand in a fire that won't burn you. But you don't deny him, and you don't compromise him. That's an overcomer. And he keeps saying those are the ones, you're going to see it again today, those are the ones that he rewards. So let's move on. So now let's go to the concern in 14. There's that word, but. But I have a few things against you. And you have some there who hold to the teachers of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. We'll touch on that. So that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice 
immorality. What is he talking about? Does everybody know Numbers 25? Everybody know what Balaam did? Anybody familiar with Balaam? So Balaam, he was kind of a he was kind of a kind of a soothsayer for hire. You could hire Balaam out and whatever you wanted him to do, put curses on people, magic spells, black magic. He was for hire. Well, Balak uh, was terrified of the Israelites because of what they'd done to the Amorites, and he thought, they're coming for me. So he brings Balaam in. He pays him, and he said, Balaam, I need you to curse the Israelites. Well, God wasn't going to let that happen. So every time that Balaam would try to curse the Israelites, it would turn into a blessing. And Balak's like, good gracious, can you not curse these people? And, he did, and Balaam knows where it's coming from, he, but he's for hire. So, I mean, he still wants the check. So he says, all right, I got a new plan. I can't curse them. God's not going to let me. He acknowledges that God's protected them. Now, we need to hear this loud and clear. Every man in here especially, and every man out there. Women, I know y'all can struggle with this too, but we have a big struggle with it. Balak brilliantly said, let's stop the curses. Send in the women. Take, 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 the Canaan, take, take these Canaanite women and have the women start seducing the men of Israel. They'll cave. And then they'll talk them into eating this food they're not supposed to eat, and they'll defile God that way. I can't curse them, but they can curse themselves. They won't pass the test if you send this after them. Women, women, women. And when they start being sexually immoral with these women, then they'll start eating these, these, the food for idols because that's what the women want them to do. Send in the women. How many times have we seen throughout church history Satan sends in the women? Sexual immorality has probably toppled more men from places of leadership and damaged more testimonies and credibility than any other sin. And you know what Balaam said? That's the plan. And guess what? It worked. Now you're going to see God didn't take very well to that, and he did protect him again. And God, and we'll talk about this in a minute because Phineas is about to show up. Phineas had zeal for God, okay? God finally said, I've had enough. All of you that are sleeping with all these women, I'm killing every one of you. He kills 24,000 of them and sets everything back right again. So know this, if you and I become problematic for the purity of his people, which now is the church, he'll kill us too. If we're a problem and he wants to purify his people, he'll remove us from them. Like I say, I watched a special about this big giant church. And they had this pastor that was everybody just fell in love with. And he, had, he, was, he was saying one thing and doing another, and eventually God said, in today's the day, I'll remove you. And he outed him. He, I mean, he's patient, he's merciful, but if you won't repent, he'll make sure that everybody knows about it anyway, if he needs to purge you. Because why? You're deceiving people, and that's dangerous. He loves those people that you're deceiving. He loves you, but if you turn against him, Psalms 5 it's it's a problem for those of y'all that think that God loves everybody. He actually hates evildoers, says it himself. Hates those that don't repent. He hates them. And he will cast them into the lake of fire. And let me tell you what he really hates is those that pretend to be with him and are trying to be scam artists. He really hates that. So he says right now, I got this going on. There's people... That, that are following the teachings of Balaam, and what they're basically doing is they, too, are sexually immoral. They, too, are, are participating in this pagan stuff. They think that they can go around and be a member of this church and live like the people outside this church, and I'm going to let that go. That's teachings of Balaam. I'm not going to let that go. And then he goes to the second group, okay? And he's very, very concerned about them holding to this, and I'm going to tell you what he's upset about. So then he goes on to the next group, and he says, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, we've talked about them before in, the, in one of the other letter, uh, letters. Got some of y'all still following this idiot. He says, so I, got, I got Balaam worshipers in here. I got Nicolaitans in here, and they're mixed among the church, and you're letting them stay. You're not dealing with it. 
So what was what was Nicholas? And many think it's Nicholas back from Acts chapter six, uh, who was with with Stephen, the first ones that were hand, given the food ministry. And Nicholas kind of faded and started this, which seems to always be the problem. Sin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do. God's Jesus has paid the price, and now we can live a worldly life and be in the world. Uh, hey, we really should party all we want to. We're 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 it's universalism. We're we're saved. We can do whatever we want. He said, "I got all that going on in the church. I, I commend those of you that are devout, devout. But here's here's my problem. My problem is with them because of what they're doing. But here's my problem with you. You're letting it go on." You're, you're, not, you're not dealing with it. You're not removing them from the church. There's no church discipline. That's, that's what I'm upset about. You're devoted over here, but then you, you treat this like it's no big deal. Probably don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Don't, don't want to embarrass anybody. But see, that goes back to, to what we forget. We don't do... Look, if you enjoy church discipline, there's something wrong with you. There ain't nothing fun about it. Okay, and you don't want to be some legalist that that or, or somebody who's sanctimonious and self righteous. That's not it. You follow the steps of Matthew eighteen, but I'm gonna tell you what is just as bad as doing church discipline the wrong way is to not do it at all. And that's what he's mad about. He's not. He's mad that it's not. Ha- Y'all just letting them stay here. You're, you're not. You're not purging this from the church. And here's what the answer is. Look what he says. What the answer is. You see this throughout Scripture, verse sixteen. Therefore, repent. Repent. This is the message he's had since his his feet touched the ground and his ministry started. Repent or perish. I call you to repentance. You know, Jesus was always always with sinners. Right. Calling them to repentance. Remember the woman at the well? He called her to repentance. Remember the woman who was being stoned? He told her to go and sin no more. He always comes and says, I'm willing to clean you up. Repent. He doesn't say, ah, I have no problem with the way you're living. He says, well, you have to repent. These people have to repent. And here's what he says. If you don't deal with it, I will. Look, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I will deal with this. This will not stand. But what he's saying to those that are devoted to him if I have to come, that means you didn't do your job. And I'll hold that against you. I'm going to handle it. But I have actually told you how to handle it. And you're not handling it. You, you are more concerned about appeasing a group of humans than you are about standing for the purification of my church. That's it. Anytime we let people blaspheme the one and only living God in the church, put things on their social media, blaspheming his standard, coming up with all kinds of stuff, if those people are not brought into the office of the church in leadership and said, we see the things you're posting about God, and that is not correct, you need to take those down. Do you want to repent of that? If they say no, and I'm just using that as one example, then you bring more people in leadership from the church and you try it again, Matthew 18. And if they continue in the behavior, the third step in Scripture is that it must be taken before the church and they must be removed. And he's upset with this church because they're not doing that. And if, if the church you're in is not doing it, he's upset with you too. And it's not something that's fun and it's not meant to be fun. It's supposed to be devotion. So let's talk about this thing that Balaam did, okay? So Jesus is threatening to chastise the church for what's going on. And so these believers believe that they could go to all the pagan feasts, they could participate in the debauchery and the sexual immorality, and still join the church and be members of the church, worship Jesus, and Scripture says this is impossible. If you have your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians. Remember 
Paul's not happy with the church at Corinth, and he writes he writes more than two letters, but two of them make the canon. So we go to, to chapter 6, 14 through 17, and here's what he is saying to this church. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, and that's talking about another one of these pagan gods, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch, and, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Scripture says if the idea is I'm going to go out here and I'm going to live the world and I'm going to hit all the pagan stuff out here, and I'm participating in all of it, but I still want to come in here and be part of this church and worship Jesus too. Scripture says that's impossible. That, that, those two things can't be together. And we let it go on. And this is what he, he, he does not like. This is impossible. He said, and, and don't miss this. This is what's important. And, and this is going to be a challenge for all of us, you, and you may not like it, but that you have to take that up with Jesus. Don't miss that the majority of the church wasn't participating in this. The majority of it, they were, they were doing good. But he said, I didn't say I want you to mostly be pure. I don't want any of this going on in my church. I don't care how few people are doing it. I don't want them here. They need to repent or they need to go. Because that's what we'd say. When we, well, we're mostly all right. I mean, we, we only have a few people in the church that blaspheme you with their lives and put things on social media and say things and don't believe the Bible and don't believe your word is without error. We only have a few. It's not a lot of them. And then what do we always say? Well, I mean, if we, if we kick them out, you know, after they've joined the church and everything and got baptized, if we, if we kick them out, I mean, they might not come back. You know what Jesus says? Fine. But you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5? No, they may actually repent when they pay a price for it. When you turn them over to Satan, they may actually repent. They might save their life. You're not saving their life by coddling them because you don't really love them if you just let them continue in the blasphemy. You're not telling them the truth. So he says in verse 16, repent or else. In the world we live in today, tolerance is celebrated by the world, but it is not celebrated by the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Tolerance is celebrated by the world, but it's not celebrated by God. Third time, tolerance is celebrated by the world, and you'll get a pat on the back from the world, but it's not celebrated by God because that means we've declared something more important than him and his purity and his standard. He says that judgment, boy, this is important. Because the first one, we probably will back ourselves out of it and say, well, I'm not in that group. But let's be sure we're not in either group. Jesus Christ is saying in this letter to this church, there's judgment coming for two groups of people, the heretic and those who tolerate the heretic. Romans 1 talks about this. And what some people say, an obscure letter from Paul. What are we talking? A clobber verse. A clobber verse. It clobbered me right into heaven. Okay? Clobber verse. Are we, how are we letting this go on? But, but anyway, so I'm going to say it again. Judgment is coming for two people, the heretic and those who tolerate the heretic. Two categories. Don't be in either one. Now, there's a right way to handle it, but handle it. By Scripture. So let me tell you about a guy named Phineas. We've already been challenged by Antipas a little bit. This is that thing where God is, you know, there's the God of the Bible, then there's the cartoon God that people make up. Let's go with the God of the Bible. Anybody with me on that? So this is when Balaam did all his deal, okay, and he, he, had, uh, 
he had the men all sleeping with all the Canaanite women, eating all the pagan uh, idol food. And so now don't forget that Moses is, is, uh, is still around here, okay? Look at, look at chapter 25 of the book of Numbers, and you're going to meet a guy named Phineas. That, that, uh... <laughs> so all these Mennonite women were sleeping with all the, is, the, the men of Israel in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation, I'm in verse 6, of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting when Phineas, son of Eleazar, a son of Aaron the priest, saw that the men were having sex with these women in the camp while worship of God was going on, right there in their tent, in the campground, in front of Moses, in front of the congregation, and more importantly, in front of God. Well, Phineas had had enough. Okay? So I want you to listen to this. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar and son of Abraham, verse 7, a son, a son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went in after the man, the, the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, uh, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So he's, you can see how you can get them both in, uh, based on what they were doing. He sticks a spear through both of them. Human kebab. Right through the belly. Okay. Listen to this. Remember, he killed 24,000 people. Guess what happened after Phineas did this? The plague stopped on, the, on, on Israel. Nevertheless, those who, those who died by the plague that God put on them, 24,000. What is God's response that Phineas said, I've had enough, took a spear, went to the guy who blasphemes God, took a spear through him and the uh, uh, Midianite woman that he's blaspheming God with, when he sticks the spear through both of them, first of all, we see God's first reaction, the plague stopped. Here's what God had to say in verse 10. Are you ready for this? And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. He was zealous for me. He finally stood up for me. You know what God said about Phineas? Finally, I got one who won't let this stuff go on. Now, I'm not saying that we go take a, a spear and, and plunge through people, but in this particular case, the bigger, the bigger lesson here is he didn't tolerate this anymore. He was not going to stand there and let God be blasphemed any longer a plague had come down on everybody because no one would, would discipline these people of Israel who had turned from God and had been fooled by Balaam and Balak and they're blaspheming God and nobody would do anything. And Phineas said, I will. And you know what God said? There's one. There's a man with zeal for me. Are there any in here? Are there any out there? Do you stand up for God? Or you just keep it quiet and don't want to upset anybody? Do you just let God get blasphemed right in front of you and just let it go? Do you let it go on in the church you're in? Don't ever go to leadership and say, why are we allowing this? You don't do it for any other reason than you do it because you're, you're, you're zealous for God. And apparently it's a big deal to God. In this revelation... And then what I just told you. Apparently, he really cares about it. So here's what he says next. For those that will do something, for the Phineases in the room. 17. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now he gets down like he does every time. Now it's personal. Everybody's an individual. Listen to what I say next. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a beautiful image, and we're getting to the end, so y'all stay with me, okay? He who overcomes are those who do not tolerate or participate in things that blaspheme God, and there's three things for the overcomer. Hidden manna. 
What does he mean by that? You know that the Lord God provided manna for his people. They always he took care of them with manna, the sweet, delicious piece of God's provision. You know he says the overcomer's gonna get the bread of life. I'm manna. I'm the final manna. I'm the bread of life. The overcomer gets me. What else do the overcomer get? All the blessings that I bestow and all the benefits. Now, the white stone analogy here by Jesus has much speculation, but I think the one that that everybody feels real good about. Uh, The priests wore white stones, so that's one thing people said. And you can to reveal, they, they had these stones. They were like, God, show us your will. Show us your will in these stones. And the priests would somehow, God would show them what they answered to their prayer. That's one thought, not a bad one. And you'll find that in Exodus 28, verses 15 and 30, that the priests did that. Leviticus 8, 8, you'll see the priests with these white stones. Numbers 27, 21. Deuteronomy 33, 8. I'm letting y'all write those down. You'll find that, but I'll tell you the one that to me is most likely. They're in the Roman Empire. These are Gentiles. It was a Roman custom that they awarded white stones to the victors. And all their athletic contests, if you won, they had the thing they put on your head, but they also gave you a white stone. The white stone, listen to this, would have the name engraved on it of the person who was victorious. And they would go through the Roman Empire with that white stone with their name on it, and guess what everybody would say? You have special privileges. Oh, you have a white stone with your name on it. You're a victor. Or maybe Jesus would say an overcomer. And you now have the blessings and the benefits that go with it. And then he says the next thing we get is a new name because what does he say? The name that's written on the stone, does nobody know it but you and me? It's a brand new name. You were redeemed. You overcame. You repented. I forgave you. And I've given you a new name on that stone. And because of the privileges that you now have, I'm the only one that needs to know what it is. It's a new person. It's a person that has been transformed by Jesus. This is our ticket. This is the name we get from God. He knows it, and we'll look to see it when we stand before him. So here's the the church's choice from Jesus. Repent and receive all the blessings of eternal life and the glory of heaven, or refuse and face the terrifying reality of having the Lord Jesus Christ declare war on you. The path of compromise always leads to judgment. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the reminder, harsh reminder, that you expect all of us that you went to the cross for to defend you and stand against all who want to blaspheme you. And Lord, if we are a blasphemer, or we tolerate a blasphemer, we will receive the judgment that was due them, right along with them. I pray, Lord, that we would be forgiven for the times that we have been passive. We can find no one in the New Testament under the power of the Holy Spirit that is passive, that truly belongs to you. Passivity in in men and in followers of Christ has found its way back into your church. And we repent of that. I pray that you give us the power, you give us the discernment, and you give us the clarity on how we defend your perfect word. And may we never be found to be trying to attempt to be of the world, in the world, and then have one foot in your church. We're called to be in the world. You said that, but we are not called to be of the world. And if we choose to be of the world, we are not welcome 
in your church. We are not welcome in your presence if we have declared that you redeem us. To the lost, the door is always open. But to the false teacher and to the hypocrite and to those that claim to know you, but as you said in Matthew 7, you've never even heard of them. May we not be found in that lot. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time today.